still a lot of still a lot of paragraphs for you here. Where do I where do I cut in? Oh, Rob thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I can't. You want me to write your thoughts for you too? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the that's the edit that you made. <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. In episode 53, we will talk about the grinder effect. Wrong podcast. Why your TV might be delayed in the Panama Canal. And of course, Switzerland's coming defense of Gruyere. We knew this was coming. A new movie to be directed by James Cameron after he gets done with Avatar 83. <laughs> Later, we'll talk to Vittore Pula of the ICRC on the link between trade and humanitarian assistance and her innovative project called Cuisine Lab, providing work as a basis for integration of migrants in Geneva. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and, of course, a few jokes. So, should we get into it? Before we have any further ado... That... <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to episode 53. Listeners will be happy to know, or not, uh, probably will be, that 53 is the atomic number of iodine. I know it from my childhood as what I used to clean up cuts and bruises that I got to my ego, mainly. <laughs> it's also in the thyroid, it's key to metabolism, the ability to turn off calories. And in its vapor form, it's very irritating to the eye. Also kind of like Jordan Peterson. <laughs> like Rob. <Yeah. laughs> Jordan, I was going to say Jordan Peterson. And as iodine in Morton Salt. Also, since we've reached episode 53, I think it's important that we insert a Rob age joke <laughs> somewhere here or thereabouts. Yeah. Or not. Actually, you told me that you got feedback that we sh I should stop making the age jokes. I just want listeners to know that I met a lot of these listeners in person recently. They're Rob's people from the great state of Michigan. And they told me, keep up Wisconsin. with the age jokes. They said that. They said, keep it up. They literally said that. So it makes me feel okay. better about Great. making fun Fantastic. of your age. Oh, good. I want you to feel better about that. But you know what you should feel even better about? What? Subscribing to the podcast. I want to smash that subscribe button. Letting listeners know that they should subscribe to the podcast specifically and make sure they catch the next episode coming out, future episodes as well. And better yet, they can't they just stream them without subscribing? They can, but they should subscribe that. before they do that. Better yet, they can also share it with a friend or a stranger. They can find this anywhere. They get their podcasts. Is there and a way they can airdrop the podcast on people? No. Unsuspecting? Yeah, you can if you're on a plane, probably. Okay, they do yeah. that with photos. Yeah. It's a little weird. <laughs> but also leave us a review if you have time, which yeah, I'm sure stars. you do. Also, more plastic watches. Have you heard about that? You were you were really tired of the moon swatch craze. And I now was, there's, yeah. there's a new you thing. You only bought two of those before the craze died out. There's three, but who's counting? We'll get to that a bit later on the uh, This Week in Local News. But just so you know, it's coming. I was also wondering, Artie, if you had any advice on where I should go for my next Albania. <laughs> go to Albania. It's really exploding. It's blowing up, uh, mainly because it's cheaper than Greece and Croatia. But also, which people probably don't know this when they book the flight because it's cheaper, it's also much nicer. People are friendlier. It's cheaper, mainly and, cheaper. And nicer. It is nicer. And there's less Greek people. And uh, Croatia folks. Did you know that everything is Greek? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I learned when I went to Greece. That's neither here nor there. I, uh, so go to Albania. Visit Albania. Visit Albania because it's now the number one new destination in Europe. Exactly. Is we're, it in Europe? It is in Europe. Okay. You, you should know that. Real good. You were there. <laughs> well, I thought I would share with listeners that we were going to call the trades planning team back to the office. Okay. Uh, it's post-COVID now. 
But uh, we do need to be conscious of the uh, grinder effect. So grinder had lost nearly half of its staff after trying to force people to return to office. And I was wondering, what do you think they were maybe doing? Where is Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> also, we're artists. I mean, I do think we are artists. Podcasts. Is, we're is content it? creators. We it's should let. We should. Form. We should not forget to let everybody know. I should, exactly we create content to, for the masses. Exactly what I wanted to mention. But also, I think we need to learn from other creators. We can be in a community. So this guy, he got seventy-seven thousand bucks as an advance to do a couple of canvases for a Danish museum, he resubmitted them blank. It was called Blank Canvas. And I'm thinking, we should learn from these We're just going to send a folks. podcast of just no words, just background noise. What would the equivalent For be? 30 minutes, an empty <laughs> podcast, no talking, exactly. just us breathing. We should also mention that today marks the first episode that Christy Bagsich has joined Tradesplating. Hi, Christy. Welcome. She's listening to this as we speak. She'll also probably be joining us at some point. So she's joined us as a non-executive executive producer on the podcast. Glad to have you aboard, and I'm sure listeners will be happy to hear you join us on the podcast pretty soon. And Valentina, wherever you are. You still have an open invite to, to join the podcast. Yeah, there's a third mic. We'll have an open mic night. Yeah, every although episode. we did call everybody back to the office. Jumping right into the important news stories for this episode, first one up is on climate change. I just want to let everybody know I do believe in it. I was listening to a trade podcast where the guy kept saying, I do believe in it, comma. But he said comma? He didn't say comma, but you could hear the comma. In case people didn't know, we do believe in it. More importantly, as we approach COP28, climate remains very high on everyone's agenda, especially for trade. For context, the Wall Street Journal pointed out recently the uh, newest effects that climate change is having on global supply chains, specifically on the Panama Canal which operates on fresh water in a huge lake in the middle of the canal. This is in shorter and shorter supply because, if you guessed it, uh, climate change. And because of less water in the canal, ships are not having to wait longer or reduce their draft to get through. That's usually what they tell me at the bar. Um, with these issues, you <laughs> in the EU as well, rivers are having uh, transitions. They're happening everywhere and each year. So we're seeing the EU leaning also more into CBAM, which is taking effect October 1st. Companies will already have to start reporting the carbon content of their imports. Estimates vary, but some people say <laughs> when CBAM <laughs> takes effect, it could have distributional effects on Africa, for example, costing the continent $25 billion. So voices are growing in the U.S. and China that they should make a meaningful deal at COP to circumvent this. The U.K., by contrast, but also in keeping with what it's been doing the last couple of years, seems to be running in the other direction. Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, has walked back its net zero comments, possibly in a bid to compete by being less climate conscious. So invest in us because we're less stringent on what we ask you to report. Meanwhile, business seems to be finding a way. Yeah, pressure is building for the U.S. and China to make a deal. We do read about that. It's hard to tell whether there's adequate will on both sides. But I think if China and the U.S. are not in it, I read that you know, EU emissions are now less than 10%. So it's great the EU is into it. And mm. so they're doing a carbon border adjustment mechanism, CBAM. But I'm not sure that's going to make a huge difference. And I think it might just make Europe a little bit of a bubble. Well, it might make them just a little bit less competitive. But the UK thing is interesting. Are mm. they going in the other direction? Sunak announces that they're going to relax some of the commitments, and everybody says it's electoral politics, but could it also be them competing mm. on lower requirements? I think it's interesting. Everybody's getting more nervous. You see these big effects in supply chains of climate. And the Panama Canal is the newest one. Nobody would have expected that one. And now the UK is just like, nah. We're good. We're good. We're fine. <laughs> I think this is just another example for me, I guess, really highlights why these types of things require global solutions. It's not just a buzzword. The, Hello, Geneva. In the sense that 
if you have a global agreement on these types of things, countries are not then able to arbitrage to get the better deal or get more investment versus an economic bloc like the EU with CBAM and things like this, which might be relatively less competitive economically speaking. So that's the first thing. That makes me hopeful that we'll get something done. On the other hand, which makes you less hopeful, and sorry to be a Debbie Downer here, I feel like maybe this is just me. I know we read a lot about COP28 and, and these things every year, but I feel like it doesn't move the, the needle in, in people's daily lives as much. We'll talk about it, we'll read about it in the news when the event is here, but it, it's, it's a disheartening for me at least to, to, to feel like we're just frogs slowly boiling in water. Yeah. Well, let's see. The agreement, hopefully, we think, would then drive different domestic policies in both China and the U.S. China has said they would be net neutral. We don't know if we trust future regimes in the U.S., for instance. Yeah. In China, it does seem like this regime is going to be in place for a while. I don't know. Yeah. If you have Europe playing around, you have U.K. playing around, we have Costa Rica making really aggressive assumptions. Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> After Jurassic Park thing, nobody saw that coming. Thanks, Costa Rica. So, I don't think Costa Rica is going to move the needle. Good folks, they are. They are good folks. Sorry for the Costa Rican listeners. You made Jeff Goldblum a star. If anybody's wondering why I'm mentioning that, it's because Jurassic Park was set in an island in Costa Rica. I thought that was New Zealand. No, it was Costa Rica. Isla Nublar, I think. So if you put them both together, what do you get? You get Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Sorry to be the Debbie Downer. We're yeah. hopeful that things will be turning a corner sooner rather than later. Let's keep our hopes up because that's all we've got at this point. But the other thing we should talk about is if trade is fragmenting, then who wins and who loses is a good question to, to ask. We've talked a lot about how the tectonic plates seem to be shifting. Things seem to be calcifying in terms of countries talking more and more about de-risking, nearshoring, things like that. But the question is, what happens? Who wins and who loses? We read a lot about fragmenting trade and the rise of this multipolar world, where there is no longer just an East and a West, but there are many types of different groupings of, of national interests. So expanded G20 now includes the African Union, and expanded BRICS blocks now include countries like Saudi Arabia, or they've applied to at least. This takes place politically, but also affects trade as well. And it seems in this big reshuffle, we still see some winners and losers. Those countries are, are profiting. When ASEAN in general, but also Malaysia specifically, they seem to be um, hitting it out of the park as business de-risks with the China plus one strategy. So walling off their China business. Bit of China, but also a bit of Malaysia. So we get two birds with one stone. So Guyana is also leading the league in growth. 30% based on oil growth in the time of fragmenting oil markets. Drill, baby, drill. Thanks, John McCain. So China is also an economy taking on water, or seems to be. We've seen Evergrande and the real estate things most recently, on top of many other negative news stories. And again, it seems to be the latest country which might not surpass the U.S. economy, despite prognostications that it... China will be as big as the U.S. in no time. WTO is in panic mode, asking everybody just to hold their horses after the EU finally comes out saying China abused its openness. This is the next sort of salvo in this trade war we talked about. And meanwhile, business seems to be finding a way de-risking, even though they don't have many options most of the time. Uh, agree. We see evidence of this kind of you know, trade radiating out of China to other countries in, in the ASEAN region. Malaysia is a good example, but it's not the only one. And we hear about these different strategies businesses are bringing in. China plus one, so they, don't, they can't get out of China. Nobody can get out of China. So we have a different manufacturing area. Or as you said, you could wall off our China business. So we manufacture in China for China. Many of the manufacturers just simply don't have a place that could be as good, as cheap, as quick, as well-connected as China. It just doesn't exist. So they're trying to spread the risk a little bit. You love India as an example. Your and iPhone so, will probably be made there soon. Yeah, and iPhone's also taking gas because the Chinese are now 
saying yeah. government workers cannot use them anymore. So it's quite interesting. There's a remixing going on. It's, it's actually real. And even the EU started announcing, you know, China bad, where there was always like, we want to engage with China. China's important. Now they're just like China bad. So we do see companies finding a way. We do see countries around China profiting. We know we've also seen Mexico. We talked about it last yeah. week. Stuff is happening. And also, China doesn't seem to be the big winner here. No. Which is weird. 2020, you and I were sitting at this, a, a bigger table, Yeah, admittedly. Yeah, not anymore, because we're de-risking. <laughs> we're real estate de-risking. We're downsizing. Guess, at that time, I was saying, you know, nothing's changed. It's something's changed now, for sure. The other thing we should talk about is electric vehicles. They even include things like trade disputes, organized labor, and critical minerals. All, all the drama. things. All, all there. Th the three critical things we love to talk about. And we do love drama. We love drama. So very likely the next Netflix series will be about the EV industry. Right now it has everything. Oh, it seems to be an unbeatable villain in Chinese EV industry. Also Elon Musk, which is miles ahead of the European and U.S. automakers. In reaction, the EU, as we mentioned, has said about making noises, specifically about Chinese EV subsidies and things like this. They've taken their case to the WTO, where they've raised issues publicly, at least. Now unions are also getting in on the act. So we've been talking about past about how unions seem to have got their mojo back. In this case, U.S. auto workers are insisting that EVs and components made with U.S. subsidies have to be staffed by union workers. Materials for batteries with key components, we see Chinese minerals may be used and they may be become the the new oil. I, I'm Sorry. glad you said it. I don't want to say it. It may become the new oil, as Rob said, even as OPEC seems to be losing its influence, which I think is also a bit overblown because we still do need oil. But uh, don't worry, folks. Whatever happens, Rob is happy to know that Mercedes yeah. has at least committed to producing an electric G-Wagon. Yeah. So not all is lost. I think that's the important thing here. EV really basically could be our podcast maybe for the rest of the year. They have everything. Labor... The UAW, United Auto Workers in the U.S., is Recently. making this part of their demands. So they're yeah. striking against U.S. automakers. We have seen Chinese companies who are way ahead of the Germans, at least in the Munich Auto Show, stomping around with really great models that are already ready to go. And also this issue of China with their rare earths and different minerals. They're like, we're the new OPEC. They've got this new power, this new leverage. So I think it does have everything. On the other hand, if I'm going to get that EV G-Wagon, I think I would wear a plastic watch. Don't you think? So the question is, Just would, keep, would, it be it a, would it be a moon swatch or would it be a blanc pain swatch collaboration? 50 fathoms. Sorry, I wasn't sleeping for a minute there. I didn't. I open up emotionally and you jab. <laughs> so yeah, stay tuned for that because it seems things are moving and um, EVs will be playing a bigger, bigger role even more so than just to the end of the year, I think the next uh, year or so, because it is such a big plank of how countries are aiming to carry out this green transition. I'm saying that in, in quotation marks. Yeah, and we see the Chinese have actually leaped ahead while we were standing around. So the U.S. has put in punitive tariffs. So subsidies do work. <laughs> we don't know what works. Proper subsidies have never been carried out, so we don't actually know what it would look like, just like communism. Born in Kosovo and raised in Switzerland, Fittore Pula is the head of the International Sector Central Tracing Agency at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Artie's old job. She began her career as an ICRC delegate at headquarters and then in the field, passing through the occupied territories, Iraq, Jordan, and most recently Bangladesh as head of mission. Fittore is also co-proprietor of the Cuisine Lab here in Geneva. Cuisine Lab is an innovative restaurant culinary space designed to empower asylum seekers and refugees by offering them opportunities to develop their skills, gain valuable experience, and secure meaningful employment in the culinary field. 
Vittoria holds master's degree in international relations and business management. Vittoria holds a master's degree in international relations and business management and speaks several languages and is familiar with a whole ton of cultures. So we say welcome. So Fitora, thanks for, for joining us on the podcast. We've previously had Alessandro on from the humanitarian angle, but he was basically telling us why IFRC is, is really better than ICRC. <laughs> so that's why we had to bring the contrasting take on the response. Exactly. Your response to his diatribe. Let's start off by having you tell us a little about yourself. How did you end up in the humanitarian sector and what's your journey been like? As you know, I'm from Kosovo. And I've been myself a refugee, so I landed in Switzerland in 1992. I was in the class, I was 18 years old, and I've seen Barbara Hendrick singing, and she introduced herself as the UNHCR ambassadors, and I think that was the moment that I decided that I'm going to be one of those helping other people. And uh, so I looked, and then that's why I ended up in Graduate Institute, and here I am in Geneva now for 30-something years, yes. And that's how I became a humanitarian. It's been now 20-something years that I've been in this. Excellent. And how has that changed over time? Have you seen changes since you first yeah. started? Oh, yes, definitely. I think it's not, it's my generation, but I think it was when we were doing this job, it was because of love of the job. And today has become more as a part of the career, actually. So I can see the difference. That's huge. But that's how it goes. <laughs> And so uh, on the podcast, we try to take an angle, sort of as the name implies, a, a trade angle, less on the splaining. We hope. <laughs> we hope. And while like, economics and trade aren't necessarily things we associate with a field like humanitarian assistance, but is there a way we can think directly about the relationship or two? Is there a link? I think there is definitely a link because... And all my missions that I've done around the world, I would say, especially I was five years in Middle East and my last mission was in Bangladesh. The fact with the trade is that you can tell that there was inequity, actually. So those people depending on the trade are the ones who are there, if I dare say the poorest, and they have not a sustainable economy. And therefore, they are quite fragile and they're the one that facing with conflict and wars. And that's why... As a humanitarian, I end up being there. So when I was asked for this subject, I was looking into that because we do, as an ICC, we do provide economic support to the people in need. We're trying to make it as resilient as possible, not just to provide help and support, but also to make people develop their own economy, actually, become independent. So this is also a part of the notion that ICSC has been trying to develop in, the, let's say, the last 10 years. Because when people have their own, how do I say, strengths, budget, and they are owner of something, they are the one that will less suffer from the poverty, they will be educated, they will be less inclined to go forward to run for the wars, and also create the stability of the country. So yes, I do see the link there, definitely. And for me, they go together. What do you see as the, because oftentimes we hear about the, let's say the difficulty of putting the two together. Humanitarian is mm -hmm. it's emergency oriented, it's rapid deployment, it's often providing commodities to people yeah. who are in extreme need. So how are you able to make the link? What do you think is maybe some of the things that make it difficult to make that link? Because of what you say makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but it's changing. On the last 10 years, there was the UN initiative with a big embargo that they just, I mean, it's about to change. So more and more, we are pushing uh, for the people local, that we call the localizations, to develop their own strengths. And we, as we say, internationals, 
who would come as a relief or support will come down to provide some expertise, but then they are the one to develop it further. This is a notion that has been going on for quite some time, but nevertheless, uh, there's this, as we call the nexus between the development and also humanitarian responses. And we're trying to bind them all together because it's true by just going, supporting, providing humanitarian response and then leave the country in the long term is not positive. So as the head of the international sector at the Central Tracing Agency, there's not really a direct trade component. But I think what's interesting for us is that you recently started a new venture here in Geneva in the shape of the Cuisine Lab. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the link is that both link with both sides is refugee helping and making sure that our fellows refugees, they get something with the central tracing agency. I do work with uh, colleagues that are from Ukraine, from Russia, from other countries. That means I'm also refugee here in Switzerland. And whereas with the Cuisine Lab, which is an association, it started in 2016. It's again with the refugees, chef refugees. And proved to be talented in cooking, but they didn't know how to make themselves known in the public. The, the beginning was just doing catering. Three years ago, they expressed the wish and the dream to have a restaurant where they can perform, see how it works in the restaurant, because it's different from catering to restaurant. And so that is happening today. So we opened the restaurant. And so the chefs, the Syrians, Sri Lanka, Eritrea, Sotalal, Gayatri, Sabah, Drake, they are all these people that are there and they are seeing how it's to be working in the Geneva environment, in restaurants, a restaurants they own. And is this something that was a long time in the making? You said the last three years. How, yeah. Is it a matter of just sort of skills development, showing them what it's like to open a business in Geneva? Hint, oh, it's not yeah. very easy. All you need is money, <laughs> Artie. That's all you need. Hashtag red tape. Uh, <laughs> how does that work? Do you identify refugees with a background in cuisine? who are chefs or former chefs, et cetera? And is it more of a way to give them uh, a leg up, not just from an economic angle, but uh, you know, having been a refugee or, or asylum seekers or whatnot, is it more of a social angle, just sort of making them feel like contributing members of, of society rather than just having this quote-unquote refugee tag? All of them, all that, the three dimensions that you mentioned, all of that. Some of them, they, are, they used to cook in their own country. And when they find themselves in Geneva and Switzerland, it was like, what should I do with my life? And so they started cooking on their own kitchen. Now they are doing this in the Cuisine Lab restaurant, which is highly appreciated. Secondly, yes, when you come to a new country, and I think we all are experts, okay, we're lucky we speak English. Some of them, they don't even speak English. They come with their own background and they tend to remain in their own communities, actually. Speaks only Arabic, speaks only Albanian, speaks only whatever language. And at the end of the day, I don't call that integration. So this is the reason why they also go out there through the cuisine, through the food, is also meet with the other people. See uh, how people from Switzerland, from America, from, uh, I don't know, other countries behave or they talk. So this is really part of the integration. But also it's part of becoming independent because this is what the role of the cuisine lab is, that these chefs will give them a chance because, yes, they have a, a clear status, which is the refugees. But the idea is also that one day they will get the training they will get the license and they will be on their own and they will be able to open their own restaurant somewhere in Geneva or in Switzerland. And do you see a response from the people who eat there? Because I'm sure also part of it is to give a message. One hears about refugees, one votes in Switzerland against such things many times. Mm -hmm. But is it, do you see a response from people who eat there to say, ah, now I've had a human connection with somebody? 
Well, because the restaurant is located near the new building where the MSF, the Médecins Sans Frontières is, where the Global Fund the Centre is, where the WHO is. So it remains, I have to say, mainly experts. So yes, I do feel like I'm somewhere in, in the field mission where I go to that restaurant, definitely, because I'm in connection with the food. Like it reminds me when I was in Lebanon. Reminds me of when I was in Bangladesh. But then, of course, you meet different people from different countries. And I think that's val- in, I mean, invaluable for me because it's multicultural and multilingual. Have you ever thought about opening up an Albanian cuisine lab, a pop up? Well, not so much, I have to admit. <laughs> Maybe not. Moving on, next question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, yeah, I mean, no, is the answer. <laughs> yeah, Albanians in Geneva is not a new thing, if I, if I could just throw that out there. Um, so is there any big events coming up for Cuisine Lab? Uh, where can people go if they want to go check out Cuisine Lab? Yeah, well, the, the website is cuisinelab.ch. It's uh, easy to find. We're doing lots of catering uh, for different organizations, for special or uh, private events. So yeah, through the internet, but also if people want to visit us, uh, the restaurant is open. Uh, daily just the weekend is closed and uh, yeah it's not the traditional or the normal geneva restaurant i just want to say that it's really we are in supporting our chefs for our community which is really refugees but also internationals also waiters are actually nice to you also it's not empty (laughs) (laughs) no it's not empty (laughs) the apéros are really nice the apéros and now we have the terrace it's I like it. I tell you, it's really nice to end the day. It's really nice place. Excellent. So I guess me and Rob will make sure that we'll get to Cuisine Lab at the next available opportunity. Maybe a, f- a field reportage from there. Yeah, we'll have to record an episode from the bar. Yeah. But I think before we go, we've got a couple of important questions we wanted to ask. So I guess the first one is a bit more expat focused. You're originally from Kosovo, which I guess for Rob is super confusing. He insists they should just call it Albania. But what have you learned about your home country while living abroad that you didn't realize before you left? And I think you've probably got a great story here. Well, everywhere. Everywhere I go, I find one or two Albanians. So I went to Bangladesh and I was not expecting to meet one. But here we go. We are everywhere. Everywhere. She means everywhere. And I have to be careful what I say and how I say things because for sure there will be someone understanding me. So <laughs> it's okay. I think Lee and Meeson's still doing those movies. So yeah, exactly. he'll be good. He'll yeah. find you. Careful. <laughs> so is there anything you've learned about Kosovo? Uh, well, left? I was actually amazed to see that despite that, whatever we have gone through, the wars, conflict, and everything that we know, it's such a resilient population, such a resilient people. They learn different languages. I'm very proud. I mean, everywhere I go, I'm proud to say I'm Albanian, I'm Kosovo. I'm half Albanian and half Kosovo, proudly to say. My grandmama was from Dure, from Albania. Grandfather was from uh, Kosovo. And people are skilled, flexible. They learn languages, as I said. They integrate themselves quickly, easily. And thanks to all of this diaspora, they are making Kosovo and Albania flourish. Yes, I was impressed because when we live inside, probably we don't see this. And so we have to go out to see it. Would you say your selection for this podcast was random? Oh, yes, definitely. What do you talking <laughs> well, about? <laughs> I just close my eyes and 
Ding. The first random yeah, person exactly. I found <laughs> happened to be a Kosovar. <laughs> so I guess that's going to be Rob's next vacation de- destination. He's already been to Montenegro and Albania. And I don't think he's been to Kosovo, but that'll be the next stop on his mystery tour. There's plenty of direct flights. <laughs> so speaking of Rob, have you considered hiring him as a celebrity chef for a week? Our research team told us that Geneva is in fact sort of dying. They're clamoring for sort of Wisconsin delicacies. I saw that. We missed an American chef. So yes, welcome. Anytime. <laughs> I make a, a really amazing uh, macaroni and cheese. It's exactly what it sounds like. Absolutely. I have to go to look into the internet, but I I love the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's very exotic. So you know Geneva well, and you know that the national food of Geneva, which is both a republic and a canton, is kebab. Yeah. That's the national, the native food. So in Geneva, what is your favorite kebab? And let me give you an example. Cuisine Lab. Parfum de Beirut. 10 years ago, or 20, yeah, well, more than that, there was this cafe in Beirut that they do these small sausages, and we called it an Albanian sujuk, and the Lebanon and Beirut, they call it the same. And I couldn't find them anymore. They disappeared. And kebab, I'm not a big fan. I got intoxicated when I was in Iraq, so I'm sorry. But guess what? And, and this is not a promotion. Cuisine Lab with our chef Talal from Syria, I find the best sujuk. They are just those that I missed for 20 years. So here we go. Cuisine lab place. (laughs) I I knew there'd be a cuisine lab angle. And and last question. Have you ever had your bike stolen in Geneva? And if so, were they Albanian? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. After 30 years in Geneva, you get at least twice stolen. But that's what it is. It is a rite of passage. So everybody steal a bike and go down to cuisine lab. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's been it's been great talking. I know Rob has enjoyed it. I can tell by his face that he's now hungry. Yeah, tomorrow lunch. Let's <laughs> nice talk to you. I say in Albanian, Rob is learning Albanian very slowly, hanging out with me. I want. We need one or two words when we call when we go to Kosovo. That's true. Yeah. He, he knows beer, and he knows raki. Oh, yeah. that's the most essential one. So that's good. <laughs> Sorry, that brings us to the next segment, This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. Anywhere else. Or Geneva. We've been talking a lot about this Gruyere situation. Uh, U.S. courts have determined Gruyere is not a trademark, that you can have American Gruyere. Now the Swiss are ready to fight back. The parliament said they're empowering the trade ministry and trade negotiators of Switzerland to defend Gruyere as a trademark. However... Trade agreements do have to be mutual, so they'd have to see what America's really feeling about that. So they sent a sternly worded email. No, they, yeah, to, to their own guys. They to asked say, to speak yeah. to the manager. <laughs> yes, exactly. Maybe you should just insist a little more on this thing. This is the, I want to speak to the manager version of trade disputes. Yeah. So it's a step. The, the Swiss are moving in the right direction. You've got to defend Gruyere, don't you? Gruyere is Gruyere. They, I think that's a really important thing people need to know. Something really a lot less important is that Swatch seems to have a new collection. This is with the blank, blanc, blanc pain. Yeah, this is much harder to pronounce than Omega. And people are basically saying who really gives a... Many people are saying that, but many people are also saying that they waited in line the night before the release to get there and then sell them for people, thousands people of dollars. People did that? People yeah, went, okay. there's photos everywhere. It was all over Reddit, the subreddit. It was all over the subreddit of Swatch. So Swatch heard your pleas for more. Yeah. 
and they decided to More release collabs. another collaboration, this time with Blancpain. It's genius. You know why? Because I've only heard you mention Blancpain two or three times in my entire life of knowing you these past 10 years. And three of those times were in the last one minute of our friendship. <laughs> exactly. So Swatch is doing something right because not everybody's talking about Blancpain. It's a collaboration with the <laughs> Blancpain 50 Fathoms watch. Apparently, it's the first ever dive watch that you could wear on your wrist. Is this segment over yet? It's 50 Fathoms deep, which for people who aren't Jack Sparrow, it means 96 meters. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's plastic? It's Did plastic, just, but just... this has a mechanical movement, and it's 400 bucks. Is it really? It is. Dave. For a plastic watch? Yeah, but like I said, 50 fathoms deep. Okay. So you get to say 50 fathoms. <laughs> uh, you'll be hearing more about this in the episodes to come as I badger Rob to get one. So, folks, tune in next week when we'll tell you more about the incredible news stories that are affecting us here in Geneva. Yeah, thank you. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 53, brought to you by Climate Change, fragmenting for even more trade, and an electrical vehicle near you, probably a Chinese one. We also want to thank Vittore Pula of the ICRC for talking to us about the relationship between humanitarian assistance and economics and trade. That's right. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Olguin and Christy Baxich for highlighting the vibe shift as well as helping him produce this and every TS episode. RIP Valentino. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really anywhere you get your podcasts. Really anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We do read all of them, so please be gentle. Can they contact us on Twitter? They can contact us on the social media app, formerly known as Twitter, hashtag Prince, at Tradesplaining, or on Instagram at trade.splaining, or email us your questions, comments, the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen responsibly, or just listen.